You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. Okay, welcome back from Morning Tea. And please, you're not now all sitting down, so I don't need to say this, uh, get ready, I'll say instead, for our next plenary session, Justice and Rights in the Emergency. Emergency Powers and the Declaration Debate. To guide us through this session, please give a warm welcome to the accomplished writer, author, lawyer and broadcaster, Corinne Grant, who is the only person I know who was a comedian who became a lawyer, when really most lawyers are all desperate to be comedians. Here's Corinne. Thank you very much, Jane. I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Woiwurrung Wawindjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present and emerging, and uh, pay my respects to any elders or leaders who are in the room today. Always was, always will be First Nations land. So we are holding this session specifically because we know that some of us have worries about what declaring a climate emergency might mean for government power. I don't know why. We've got a wonderful government at the moment and I trust them completely. (laughs) This is an opportunity for us to consider what those concerns are and how they intersect with broader humanitarian and social justice issues that widespread climate disruption is going to cause, such as displacement of large populations and civil unrest. The question really is, can we set out to achieve maximum protection from climate change whilst also safeguarding our liberties and creating a more just world? We've got our wonderful panel of speakers here. We have Nadal Nguyen, uh, Reverend Tim Costello, Dr Nicole Rogers and Philip Sutton. Please give them all a warm round of applause. The way this plenary is going to work is that each of our speakers is going to uh, speak for five minutes and present their position. Then we're going to have a 20-minute discussion and then we're going to open it up to questions. So. Without further ado, I'm going to start with our first speaker, Nidol Nguyen, who is a commercial litigator with Arnold Bloch Liebler and a human rights advocate. Nidol was born in a refugee camp in Itang, Ethiopia, and raised in Kakuma Refugee Camp, Kenya. At 18, Nidol moved to Australia as part of Australia's refugee and humanitarian program. She's completed a Bachelor of Arts from Victoria University and a Juris Doctor from the University of Melbourne. Outside of work and through the experiences of her family and community, Nadal has developed an interest in issues concerning human rights, multiculturalism, the settlement of refugees and those seeking asylum. She's volunteered extensively in relation to these areas and has worked with Victoria Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission, the Judicial College of Victoria, Oxfam and the Centre for African-Australian Women's Issues and other organisations. In both 2011 and 2014, Yadol was nominated as one of the 100 most influential African Australians and she is currently a board member of the Melbourne University Social Equity Institute and still found time to get here today. Please welcome Yadol to the stage.
Uh, thank you very much. It's, it's, it's good to be here. Um, I'm assuming that all the acknowledgement has been, have been done, so I'm going to go straight to the, to the point. What we're here to discuss uh, on this panel, in my view, has already happened. Um, I think we've already shown that we can achieve maximum protection from climate change while safeguarding liberties and creating a just world. I think we already struggle, um, even, even at the best of time, to create a just world. I also think that the objective of, of safeguarding liberties and addressing climate change in, in, a long, in some instances are irreconcilable. So be ready for the dark picture that I'm going to paint. I wanted to paint this dark picture because I think that in the West, particularly if you live in developing nations, that we are very much shielded from the consequences of climate change. But the effect of climate change are already affecting large parts of the world. It is in the climate refugees that are fleeing their homes where their islands are becoming places that they can no longer live in. This means a loss of culture, a loss of identity, and a loss of everything they knew. It is in the millions of people who are now in poverty whose food, um, whose their ability to firm and provide for themselves are put under constant strain from droughts and floods. And for people like Tim Costello, who I know has just been in South Sudan recently, it is in the child who does not have food or is huddled in a flimsy shelter during a violent storm. Some research has been suggested that you can see the fingerprints of climate change in the wave of Central Americans fleeing, the, fleeing from Central America to the United States and even the Syrian war. In a report uh, to the UN uh, Human Rights Council in June 2019 state that human rights might not survive the upcoming upheaval. In Australia, I think we remain largely and relatively shielded from the harsher consequences of climate change. I think we are shielded first by the level of development that have been achieved by this country, and second, by the wealth that we have. The wealth provides us with enough resources to continue to respond to disasters, climate disasters, in a way that makes it unlikely that we experience the immediate and ongoing pain of these changes. And I think that might explain our traditional response. Our traditional response in most Western societies have been through environment, maintaining the environment through uh, legislating for environmental protection. I should mention that even when there are legislations to protect the environment, that sometimes it requires significant action from activists for those policies and laws to be followed by companies and others. I do think that this traditional response, however, um, assume that we will have an environment that exists in the first place. And I don't think that assumption, um, especially after the recent bushfires, is one that we can maintain without questioning. What happens when the consequences of climate change worsen that we cannot make the assumption that the environment as we see it now will continue to, maintain, will continue to exist and that we can in fact maintain it? What happened in that environment I don't think we can achieve the maximum protection of protecting climate change while also safeguard, safeguarding liberties. So my answer to that is that it is no. It's no because historically we know that when things get tough, certain people will suffer. If we can treat a small number of refugees coming to this country on boats the way we've treated them in this country, if we can deny them their fundamental human rights, if we can watch them die instead of watch, uh, walk our street, when we are currently a functioning democracy, 
how will we respond to climate refugees in much more larger numbers knocking at our door? Would we be able to protect their rights? And sadly, we're not alone. I mentioned before that research suggested um, some of the, that uh, climate change can be linked to the wave of Central Americans fleeing to the United States. And we have seen the response in the United States. We have seen a country that prides itself as a foundation in respecting the rule of law, a country that goes to war to bring democracy, caging little children. So to me, the question is not whether we will be able to safeguard liberties, the question is what we will do within, within Western democracies when things get tough. I think Western democracies who are responsible um, for the great, uh, for the worst pollution, at least until recently, um, have acted as if things are not as bad. And they are right. It, is, it has never been bad enough for them, perhaps not yet. You don't need to convince a Pacific Islander who is losing their homeland to rising sea waters about climate change. You need to convince the average voter in a Western democracy who might not have suffered yet that this is something that will impact them too immediately. So I think this is where the debate is. I hope and sadly that the bushfire is finally bringing this point home. I think as we go on and as things get worse and if business remain the same, that the burden of reality of climate change will eventually make it very hard, even in Western democ democracy, for us to maintain society as we know it. And that would mean that it would be very difficult to adapt to common principles that have been accepted for, the lo for a long time in Western democracy, in especially the respect for the rule of law. This is an, a quote that I read in an AFR statement, and I, saw, I thought I would bring it um, out because the, fin the Australian Financial Review is not known um, to be necessarily um, extremely left-wing. <laughs> so and it, it was written that it is, not, it is no longer difficult or alarmist to imagine a day when, in the extreme, the defense, external affairs, and immigration powers of the Commonwealth are involved to support measures not seen since World War II. These measures would be brought in to deal with the social, political, economic, and physical effects of climate change. This is not a statement from a latte-sipping uh, person from Fitzroy. And I hope that as we have seen the horrible bushfires, that finally, in Western democracies, we begin to understand that eventually it will come knocking at our door, and it would affect society as we have known it. Um, and hopefully that might bring, that might begin to change things. My view is that for most countries that have had to deal with the consequences of climate change, for people in allied nations that are losing their homeland, the debate has already been settled. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nador, for bringing some, uh, some perspective to the debate and reminding us that it's not a question of, of when, it's, it's here now already. Our next speaker is the Reverend Tim Costello, former Chief Advocate and CEO of World Vision Australia and one of Australia's leading voices on social justice and global poverty. He has been instrumental in ensuring these issues are placed on the national and international agenda. 
He travelled the world for work in poverty alleviation and emergency relief as he led World Vision in Australia for 13 years. Tim is an ordained Baptist minister and had years building community and addressing issues of justice in St Kilda and Melbourne. Tim was named in the Australian of the Year Awards in 2006 and was made an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2005. His best-selling books include Hope, Faith, Streets of Hope, Tips from a Travelling Soul Searcher, and most recently, his memoir, A Lot with a Little. Please make Tim very welcome. Well, thank you for that introduction. It's pretty much as I wrote it, really. Uh, only joking. So we are discussing this uh, issue uh, of a climate emergency declaration because it's a, a live issue. The Greens have a motion for this before the federal parliament. The uh, word emergency has been used uh, often in political language. Remember Tony Abbott's budget emergency. Trump has declared an immigration emergency and it at least has in his mind, the benefit of getting him the dollars to build his wall. When the word is used, particularly in this context, uh, the discussion always starts with, well, the category of risk means emergency declaration is the right word. It matches the category. Then it moves, but is it just rhetoric to galvanize and mobilize? Or does it have real intention? Will we actually declare it with all the ripple effects that may mean? Suspending of certain laws, certain rights, rights even to dissent. Some would say, in reality, if you mean it, it can mean a suspension even of politics. The appeal is of course to World War II. After Pearl Harbor, Franklin Roosevelt declared a national emergency. Defense spending there went from 2% of GDP to in 1945, 37% of GDP to win the war. Well, I am one who thinks you should only call for this responsibly. In other words, if you're using the word, you actually mean it and you've thought about some other repercussions. And to put my misgivings on the line before I actually say I am supporting this, I have fears that this might grant a leave pass to the expansion of state power, particularly to governments who might be inclined to censor. I wouldn't mind Alan Jones being censored, but what if it's Fairfax and Guardian also to ban strikes? Do you want to, and I ask myself this, give the authoritarian ethno-populist leaders that are sweeping the world, winning elections in rather weak democracies, another stick? Would they just misuse it? Would it be naive of civil society to hand it to them? I have considered these risks and I am prepared still to take this risk. Why? It seems to me humans and 
biodiversity have survived tyranny of all sorts. We won't survive this existential climate change emergency. These are my four reasons very quickly. We now know the scientific facts. This existential crisis will be destructive of millions of lives on the planet, and the planet's livability is now in question. There will be no politics if we can't address the climate change emergency. The truth is, it's an economic fact. A 1.5 rise in temperatures, which we're on track for, is $54 trillion in economic cost. A four-degree rise is $500 trillion in economic cost. I, like you, am just amazed. I remember it was about the 12th of December when there was the first commitment to the bushfires of $12 million. The story by the side of that was $215 million being sent, billion dollars being spent on our submarines. I was just shocked by the comparison. We know that national security demands human security, ecological security. Thirdly, it's a political fact that the party system here in Australia is unable to deal with this, I think, without a bipartisan, that's a long reach, climate emergency declaration. Why? We've seen climate change give us rotating prime ministers, Rudd, Gellard, Abbott, Turnbull, and Morrison, we know, doesn't intend to add his name to that list. So, would I be prepared <laughs> to live with ScoMo from marketing, having full reign, maybe for some of his authoritarian tendencies, if he was seriously and politically protected from being removed to deal with climate change? With some deep misgivings, I say yes. Climate change is this existential for me. Now, there would have to be very clear conditions to hand over these powers. He would uh, need to remove certain chiefs of staff and advisers from the minerals and coal executive from his office. He would need to, because uh, Paris doesn't count this, count our export emissions. Also, in this emergency, if they're counted, they add up to 5%, not 1.3% of our contribution. <laughs> he would have to declare his shame that Australia is, on a per capita basis, the number one emitter in the world. Double Europe, double New Zealand, three times the United Kingdom. He would have to admit that and announce that coal, where one tonne of coal emits 3.67 tonnes of CO2, that the whole aim of this emergency, from Australia's perspective, is to decarbonise. The focus is reducing emissions. And I believe in this for nationalist reasons. For a long time, I've been raising my voice that climate change is already here and affecting, impacting the poorest on the planet. Our former speaker just spoke about that. I'm just back from Uganda, up near the South Sudanese border. I've been there 10 times in January in the last 10 years. It never rains. 
This year in Uganda, it was pouring with rain. They said something's changed. We don't get it. This is unbelievable. The other thing up in the north uh, of Uganda, where we're building hospitals, was they, though very poor, often illiterate farmers, all knew about Australia's bushfires. I was amazed. The truth is, from a nationalist point of view, we are now the poster child internationally for climate change. Talking to the Salvation Army, they said they've been overwhelmed with the number of donations from foreigners and foreign companies. We are the poster child for climate change. I was interested, uh, Joe Hockey finishing up as our ambassador said he's been talking to Trump. Trump's really worried about the impact on the koalas in our bushfires. <laughs> well, I'll take that, I'll bank that. It's always been an impact for the developing world. When I hear Australian young people saying this is theft of our future by the older generations, they're right. But I don't want them just to think they're the first victims. The first victims are the Pacific Islands, are the poor. I want them to have solidarity with what's going on in the world. If we do declare an emergency, we not just have solidarity with the developing world already paying the price in loss of lives, we will join some 83 million people in 623 jurisdictions in 13 countries who have declared this is an emergency. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, and a, a really interesting point that if we declare an emergency, it actually forces government to tell the truth, um, which in and of itself would remove a lot of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. <laughs> uh, I'd now like to welcome our next speaker to the stage, uh, Philip Sutton. He is Manager and Strategist of Research and Strategy for Transition Initiation, RSTI, a non-profit organisation catalyzing the urgent transition to a sustainable economy. Philip was the architect of the Victorian Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act and initiated the campaign that led to the banning of nuclear power in Victoria in 1983. In 2008, Philip co-authored Climate Code Red, a groundbreaking book which puts forward a compelling case for emergency action on climate change. Philip is co-founder of Safe Climate Australia, a past president of the Sustainable Living Foundation and the Australia New Zealand Society for Ecological Economics. Please make Philip very welcome. Thanks very much. Before I start, I'd just like to mention that there's a really good discussion in a new paper that David Spratt's put out through Breakthrough. On page nine, there's a, a discussion about what about democracy. Um, you'll probably get a flavor of the approach that, that he would be taking uh, in the further comments that I'll make about, about this issue. Um, we need more and better democracy, not less. Uh, Rights need to be protected to ensure that people are treated uh, with respect and are treated fairly. And a safe climate is one of the rights that we need to struggle for. 
How does this relate to emergency action? Why do, why do people have emergency action in the first place? All around the world, in every country, in every region, people have their own words to describe it. And what it does is it signals a move from business as usual and reform as usual when there are extreme difficulties that are being faced. It's true that in some places that this is, this is misused terribly by the Bolsonaros and the, you know, the Orbans and the Trumps and so on of the world. Um, but every normal country has emergency systems in place. We had fewer people being incinerated by the bushfires this season because the emergency services people who work under emergency powers were able to protect people. And we didn't have 173 people killed uh, this time round, which is what happened in the previous bad fire in Victoria. So that's why, why we have emergency responses. But every emergency is different. We have an approach to natural disasters, we have an approach to pandemics, we have an approach to financial crises, we have an approach to security issues. Some can be better and worse constructed, but nevertheless, um, they are needed if they're done well. But one of the things which is really interesting, if you look at the legislation around emergency processes, in every democracy that's functioning, there are always time limits on the emergency process once it's declared in a highly formalised way. And the reason why there are time limits is because people have learnt from bitter experience that it's always very easy for somebody to argue, oh, well, we need to keep the emergency process going because dot, 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 I've had more power in the last you know, five minutes than I had previously. And that's why every sensible country always puts time limits on these things. What if the emergency hasn't actually been solved in the time? Then there has to be a due process for extending that, which is almost always requiring the full um, agreement of the whole of parliament and not just the government. Um, so, the climate emergency is unprecedented, at least in respect to the idea of restoring a safe climate at, at, at fast enough. So that the, bush, the, the impact side, we have plenty of emergency um, arrangements in place already and they've been used with, with, um, with very good effect in the, in the last um, sort of six months or so. Um, but we have to create a new form of emergency response to the climate issue because this is an unprecedented issue where we have to rebuild the economy globally, which means every country has to play its part, and that is a, quite a different thing to many of these, for example, the, the natural disaster type emergency responses. Um, so, what do we do to build a new form? We have to actually build it ourselves. We have to actually create it for the first time, and that's what's, uh, what we are becoming part of right now. And we want to create it in a form that is respectful and democratic. We need to build the climate emergency mode um, for a safe climate restoration from the bottom up. There are two reasons for doing that. One is because there is no other choice. Why would the fossil fuel industry declare a climate emergency, I mean the federal government declare a climate emergency <laughs> for the, for the uh, you know, for winding down their activities? They won't do it unless they absolutely have to. So, the question, so politically, we're going to have to build this up from the bottom, which is the way that we've started to do it. Um, 
We also have to build it up from the bottom because in that way we are likely, we have the best possible chance of getting the form of emergency response that we want, that we feel is democratic and respectful of all the people in Australia. So what are, what are the needs of this, this emergency response to restore a safe climate? In the back of your mind, you're thinking, you know, all the curtailments, all the controls. No, these, I think, are the, are the key things that this emergency has to deliver. Priority, focus, planning, coordination, mobilisation of people and resources. That's what we have to do. We have to have an emergency focus on solving this problem in terms of urgency and scope and engagement and involvement. But what about curtailment and control and redirection? Well, there will need to be some of that. We'll need to use the usual regulatory powers that currently have banned fracking, for example, in Victoria, um, and extend them across the whole of what you might call the bad investments. So in other words, any new thing which is likely to add to the climate problem, more, more emissions of one sort or another, we should just simply not do it. In other words, you use regulation to stop it. <laughs> Environment Justice Australia has uh, undertaken a project to prepare what we colloquially call the No More Bad Investments Act, which is a model act which would actually show how you can actually ban all the bad stuff so we can get on with doing the good stuff. Um, that needs a campaign. If anybody's interested in that campaign, uh, talk to me later. Um, okay, we want no more bad stuff. We need to shut down... Oh, my God, I've gone over time. Uh, we need to shut down the existing bad stuff. We need to redirect um, some industries, such as cement, to new technologies so that they don't uh, cause problems. Um, we want... So those are basically the main things that need to change. Who will feel the greatest force of the climate emergency? The fossil fuel industry. Thank you. Thank you very much, Philip. And yes, you did go over time, but so is everybody else. So you're in very good company. Our final speaker is Dr. Nicole Rogers. She is an associate professor and founding member of the School of Law and Justice at Southern Cross University. Nicole researches and publishes in the areas of wild law, earth jurisprudence, and interdisciplinary climate studies encompassing climate litigation, climate activism, and climate fiction. From 2014 to 2017, she instigated and co-led the Wild Law Judgment Project. She is co-editor of Law As If Earth Really Mattered, The Wild Law Judgment Project, and her 2019 Rutledge monograph, Law, Fiction and Activism in a Time of Climate Change, has been shortlisted for the 2020 Hart SLSA Book Prize. In 2019, Nicole played an advisory role and acted as an expert witness in the trial of Greg Rolls in the Bowen Magistrates Court. This was the first attempt by a climate activist to use the extraordinary emergency defence in the Queensland Criminal Code. Please make Nicole very welcome. Thanks, Corinne. Um, I'm not going to talk today about the extraordinary emergency defence that's coming up in the next session, if you're interested. Um, but what I want to speak to just quickly in the time allocated is about the 
importance of considering the human rights implications of both climate change and emergency declarations. Of course, speaking as a lawyer, this is of a primary concern um, for me and for others. I mean, it's obvious climate change is going to have this corrosive, disastrous impact on human rights. It's already having that impact on human rights. And this is why we're seeing in climate litigation what's called the rights turn. So all these climate lawsuits raising issues to do with human rights um, in attempts to uh, call governments to account for their failure to mitigate. Um, but the corollary to that, to the disastrous impact of climate change on human rights, is in fact the role that the exercise of certain human rights plays in terms of impeding mitigation. So, for instance, the right to reproduce, the right to have a family, um, is something which can impede mitigation if you consider, as David Wallace-Wells has said, each individual, particularly in the global north, as an additional little consumer um, with a substantial carbon footprint. And um, Amitav Ghosh, who's written a wonderful book called The Great Derangement, has said that in hindsight, it may well be that the Chinese one-child policy may seem to be a mitigatory strategy of great significance. Um, the freedom of movement is another contributing factor to global greenhouse gas emissions if we look at the international aviation industry and our participation in it. Um, car travel, this is why we're seeing um, this growing phenomenon of flight shame take hold. And even the freedom of speech can be seen to be a two-edged sword when, um, for instance, ExxonMobil raises the first, its First Amendment rights, its freedom of speech rights, um, in the context of being investigated uh, because of its misleading um, statements to investors and to the public, um, and, and, and it has done so. And also carbon, um, sorry, climate denialists uh, can also talk about freedom of speech in ways that we may not consider to be conducive to effective mitigation. And just to finish up with human rights and climate change and this complex interrelationship, um, even some human rights can impede adaptation. So the right to use your property without um, undue interference is going to be really curtailed once governments start preventing residential development in bushfire-prone areas, um, flood-prone areas, areas prone to sea level rise and shifting people out of those areas. Second point I want to make is that um, in Australia, we're in a particularly vulnerable position because we don't have a Bill of Rights, we don't have constitutional protection of rights in our constitution, our Australian constitution. We have what's been called five flimsy freedoms, and flimsy they are. So um, this makes us really vulnerable once we start looking at emergency powers, and you really just have to look at the war on terror um, to illustrate that. Um, and if we start dealing with climate change on a warlike footing, which has been proposed, that we shift into a sort of warlike response to climate change um, and trigger emergency powers under that context, the Commonwealth Government then um, has a lot of scope to use its defence head of power to, to 
confer enormous discretionary power on the executive arm of government, um, our Minister for Home Affairs, for instance, um, in a way that is going to really interfere with human rights of particular individuals. And that's certainly what has happened in the context of the war on terror. And um, the final point I'm going to make, I might actually stay within the allocated time for this, um, is that um, just think about freedom to protest as well in this context, because that's one of the rights which is potentially endangered um, in a state of emergency, if an emergency declaration is made. And just to illustrate, um, in Paris in 2015, following some horrific terrorist attacks, the Parisian government um, declared a state of emergency which lasted for almost two years. But one of the impacts of that state of emergency was that um, street marches were banned during COP21, which is why we saw that incredible, impressive array of empty shoes, which to me really is, suggests the genocides to come. But um, in any way, empty shoes instead of marching. And uh, climate activists, some climate activists were actually um, held under house arrest during that state of emergency. So this is also a really important consideration in Australia because we're already seeing these really draconian, repressive, anti-protest laws being made and enforced at various levels. So those are the points that I'd like to make in the context of climate emergency and human rights. We need to really be careful what we're doing in this space um, because despite the fact that, as I said, climate change has a corrosive impact on human rights, um, we also are much better off if we can voluntarily curtail the exercise of some human rights um, rather than lead, getting led to a point where more basic human rights um, start being sacrificed. Thank you very much, Nicole. Some really interesting and thought-provoking views from everybody there. The, the first question I'd like to start with is, um, and I'll, I'll, we've already touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to flesh it out with each of you, starting with you, Philip, is um, how could a, an emergency response be applied specifically to climate change? What is an emergency response to climate change going to look like? Well, I think it's, it's focused... Um, I mean, the primary focus is on changing the economy. So the first thing you think about is why would you continue um, opening up uh, fossil fuel plants of any sort? Why would you continue selling cars that are powered by um, petrol? Uh, why would you still be selling um, heaters and coolers and whatever that are fueled by fossil fuels? So it, it, it's, 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 it's that kind of regulation, which we already have some similar sorts of regulations of that type on, on the books already, but it's focused at changing what, what we can, what we buy, the, the options that we, you know, that we face. Um, that that would be the primary direction in relation to the issue of stopping emissions. Um, then, in relation to the drawdown question, um, that means building the biggest industry we've ever seen, built at short notice, um, to get the carbon dioxide out of the air. And probably the critical requirement there is, is enough money to do it. And that might mean we actually have to increase taxation rather than decreasing it for a while. Um, so that's once again... Would that impact our surplus, Philip? Um, 
Yes, well, we're going into debt on the climate so badly that the surplus is actually an embarrassment. So, um, so, so the thing is that these things are focused at the economy. I mean, if, if, you, if you feel that you're having your personal rights curtailed if you can't buy a gas heater for your home, I mean, is, is, that, is, is that really the issue? I mean, I don't think so. The focus is the economy. Um, and then the other thing is that what, what's really quite interesting is I, I read a lot of material around the uh, use of, of, of you know, wartime powers and all that sort of thing. Um, in the case of, of, the, uh, of Britain, they passed legislation right before the Second World War which basically said the government could do anything, which you know, is pretty scary when you think about it, except that what happened was in the middle of a war with the Nazis, with those powers on the books already passed by both, by both sides of parliament, um, they didn't use many of the powers because they knew that the morale of the community would be you know, destroyed if they started behaving like the Nazis. So, there are, there are whole, so basically what they did is they actually um, only used the powers when they were absolutely necessary. Uh, at one stage, um, sorry this is getting into too much detail, but at one stage um, they were running short of food and the nutritionist said if you got people to eat um, uh, brown bread, you know, mill the whole seed, um, then people would be healthier and they'd have more food. And Churchill said, no, the people have already got enough things happening to them, we should let them eat white bread. So <laughs> even in the middle of the war with the Nazis, um, there was this caution about stepping too far. I mean, unless you have a complete idiot in charge, of which we have some examples around the world. <laughs> but the thing is that that is a different issue. That's the issue of stopping authoritarians getting into positions of power. Anyway, I should stop at that point. Thanks, Philip. No, that's um, a lot of grist for the mill there. Um, Nadal, I'll come to you next on the same question. For you, what does a response to the climate emergency look like? What does that emergency response look like? Um, similarly, I think, I think a lot of it would be around thinking about um, how we've developed our economy, because um, I think that has been the biggest, the biggest argument, is that it's going to impact the economy um, if we take drastic action um, on, on climate change. But uh, I was recently um, scrolling on Twitter, um, I saw a, a picture of a sign that say, Prepare, what, uh, know your bushfire plan, and it was deep in flood waters. Right. And so within a short period of time, the same people that you know, were probably told these are moms and dads whose business are gonna go out if we take drastic action, that business was out anyway because it was flooded or it was the bushfires. So um, there was also a study um, recently that was indicating that Australia would be the, far, the fifth most impacted um, country as a result of climate change and that it will lose billions of dollars um, to its economy if no action is taken. So I think the business case that we should act is there. Um, what we are lacking to some degree, I, I, I think, is um, the advocacy from core stakeholders, you know, um, to buy into it and push collectively for action. I think we need business leaders, we need um, uh, people in all different sectors of the society to really take up a leadership role and advocate for governments to take uh, much more action on addressing the issue of climate change. And I say this because I think that there is still, um, it, sometimes the, it, it's, it's put as if there is still an argument to be made and that we should listen to the other side when the other side is someone you know, on Facebook 
Facebook or Twitter with hardly a name, um, somehow arguing that their point is as valid as a climate scientist, you know, and this has been set up as if they still a debate when in fact I think it's, it's, it's already clear on one side. So for leaders in certain industry where there might be conflict of interest for them to engage in this debate, I think this is where people need to start investing their credibility, you know, and, and speaking up for it. Um, and the other would be for the government to invest more heavily on renewables um, as a clear alternative. The challenge though is that whether, I mean, we still have people in government that don't think climate change is real. That's where we are. And it's really hard to even start thinking about how to respond to it when those in power don't even believe it's, it's happening or that human beings are contributing to it. Mm. And it's, that, that's what makes it more difficult, I think. Thank you. Nicole, do you see an emergency response to climate change starting from an economic base, or do you see it starting from, from something else? What does it look like to you? Scary, <laughs> actually. Um, I think, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what you were saying. It's very hard to imagine um, a climate emergency becoming a tangible political reality in Australia at the moment, given what we have, which is uh, a government completely complicit in uh, the fossil fuel industry, funded by the fossil fuel industry. Um, we've got these short-term political cycles which um, mean that politicians are guided almost entirely by self-interest rather than by the greater good. Um, we've just got a, a very corrupt, uh, difficult political system to shift into um, a sort of constructive emergency mode. I'm not thinking about the more disastrous forms of emergency. Um, I'm, I actually think that the judiciary has an important role to play in the context of a climate emergency, and I did so I'd be talking about this extraordinary emergency defence in the next session, which I will, but just um, generally in terms of this enormous burgeoning onslaught of climate lawsuits, for the judiciary to take a really strong and empowered stance, an activist stance, um, and, and really, I mean, for anyone who has um, caught up on the Juliana case in the United States, the teenagers who are taking on the US government, the dissenting judgment from the, the most recent case in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is worth watching because that is a judge who really grasps the climate emergency. And, um, and the judges um, don't like being called activists, they, but they can step into this breach at a time when we're seeing this political vacuum. And, um, and to the extent that the executive arm of government respect, still respects the rule of law, create real change, create the sort of emergency change that we do need. So um, I guess, you know, just to continue on from my concerns about human rights and the future of the rule of law, I do see if we can have some sort of judge-led um, emergency response to climate change, that might be the most constructive way of ensuring that... Um, our rights and freedoms are protected during a climate emergency. Okay, thanks, Nicole. And Tim, finally, for you, what does, it, what does a climate emergency response look like? 
So I think the climate emergency response is focus on priorities, but the focus is not firstly economic. The focus is actually the message, Australia has to decarbonise. Australia has to reduce its emissions. We're told we're going to meet Paris in a canter. We know it's a lie. Uh, we know even if all nations who have signed up to Paris were keeping their promises, and they aren't, we're still on 1.5 degrees warming trajectory. This is the emergency. So everyone in this room is frustrated. We all have this question, what's a way to break through the impasse? That's really why we're here over the last two days. And in my judgment, the declaration of climate emergency is focused to decarbonise. And that's the measure. And then you say, what does that mean economically? Okay. Or what does that mean if there is technology that comes? There might be some other ways. But as a breakthrough concept for our mutual frustration, I'm with caveats. You heard me express those caveats, prepared to go there. And I think it's because deep down, uh, I sense that we are in a fix because of the wiring of our human nature. If I can give a personal story, I grew up on what were called jungle doctor stories. It was a jungle doctor in Tanzania, Tanganyika then, and um, they were animal stories with uh, implications for humans. And here's the way to catch a monkey. You uh, put a box with a narrow slit in it chained to a tree. The monkey's hand can fit through the box. In the box is a stone. As soon as the monkey's hand's around the stone, the monkey cannot get its hand out of the box. And when the human warrior, the hunter, approaches, the monkey knows it is certain death, it's going to be captured. It will not let go of that stone, and it always gets captured. Implication? Despite a few people, probably in this room, who are living with a really low carbon footprint, the mass of us in Australia are saying we won't let go of our lifestyle. We won't actually tolerate our energy prices going up. We will prefer to be overtaken by the hunter called climate change. Mm -hmm. So how do we frame a breakthrough idea, which I'm suggesting maybe a climate emergency focused on decarbonising, and then you work out from there the economic priorities. Uh, thank you very much, Tim. <laughs> Philip, did you have a, a quick response? Yeah. And then uh, we'll go just, to our first question from the audience. I was just wondering whether we could take, like, uh, take it a step further into uh, sort of a higher level of caring, if you like. Why do we want to decarbonise? The reason for that is because we want to protect we want to provide maximum protection. And so then once you ask that question, then you actually can get a, a wider view on it. So for example, what would it actually take to protect the people who live in the Pacific Islands so that they can stay in their, in their area? Merely, merely going to zero emissions won't save them because we've already got enough heating in the system to flood their islands. So what we have to do is do more. But the thing is, if you, if you premise the whole exercise on maximum protection, then you can step down and say, what would you need to do to protect the people of any part of the world and the ecosystems of any part of the world? And then you can get a much clearer view on what we need to do so we don't get sort of lost, in, if you like, in the detail, the technical details. We're constantly coming back. Who and what are we trying to protect? What do we need to do for them and how fast? And I think that is... 
That's a very good point, and, and it is kind of part of this whole movement it, that it is an emergency and the time to, to talk is coming to a, an end and, and action is needed now, hence why it is an emergency. Um, uh, I'm going to go with our first question, and I'm going to throw this to you, Nadal. Uh, our first question is, is climate justice an ideal, or is it actually necessary to restore a safe climate? And I'm, I'm throwing the question to you because of the context of a, a global climate emergency as opposed to just thinking about Australia. Well, I, th I, think, it's, I think it is an ideal for... Um for those people who f feel that any change is going to impact our way of life in a way that is unacceptable. They think it's too much. We're trying to, people are asking too much when they ask for climate justice. But it's absolutely necessary um, f for our existence. Like that's what, that's what everything is built on. You know, the laws we have, um, the lives we have are built on the idea that the world exists. You know, and, and climate change threatened that very core foundation of how we exist as a society as a whole. So it's absolutely necessary. You know, if we do business as usual, the predictions are pretty bad. You know, and that, is, that then threatens everything. Nicole, what do you think? Is climate justice an ideal? And what exactly do you see climate justice as meaning? Yes, that, that is a very interesting question. Um, I mean, climate justice is huge. It's a huge concept. Um, it involves fairness between people who are currently on this planet. Um, it involves intergenerational equity, so thinking about generations to come, how to um, in some way conserve the resources of this planet and... Um, and preserve a safe climate for those, those people, even the young people today who we know are facing decades of radical uncertainty as emissions keep climbing. Um, and then there's, of course, the issue of coal miners and ensuring that people are protected as their jobs and, and economic futures are jeopardised by climate mitigation strategies. So there's just so many dimensions to climate justice. The issue of climate refugees, how do we address that? Um, how do we ensure that Australia plays the role it should play in the Pacific um, and in light of the vulnerability of our small island states, some of whom were kind enough to send resources to us during the bushfire crisis? Um, so, yes, it's, it is a very difficult concept to just kind of wrap up and <laughs> present as mm. this is climate justice. And in that sense, I suppose it is somewhat of an ideal, but it doesn't mean that it's an ideal that we just um, say it's too abstract and idealistic for us to address. We can strive to think about and to ensure that um, that what we do is consistent with, with some some concept of climate justice, however we interpret that, um, and that surely has to be better than the other possibilities. So, Thank you very <laughs> much, Nicole. And I've got, the screen's actually just gone blank now. It was screaming at me, time is up, and now we've gone into some kind of ether where I'm not quite sure whether we're in the same dimension or not anymore, but anyway, we're done. Uh, could you please put your hands together and thank our panellists? Mm -hmm.
This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. 